You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. Well, good morning, Bethel. You guys can have a seat. And thank you, as always, to our worship band for leading us in worship today and serving us in this way. I appreciate you guys. Well, how are we doing this morning? How are we doing this morning? All right. Uh, It's good to see all of you, and I want to add my welcome to Adams. My name is Clint, and if you're a guest with us this morning, we're so glad you are here, and we don't think that's by accident, so we're glad you've joined us, Uh, and we would love to know how to connect with you, and so if you haven't already, we would love for you to stop by our visitor's desk just out in the lobby on the way out, uh, just so we can get some contact information, let you know uh, what all's going on in the church, and then for our Easter fundraiser, we'll just sell your social security number uh, on the dark web somewhere. Everybody wins. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to the book of Mark. Y'all, we are on the home stretch of our study of the gospel of Mark. Uh, And I don't know about you guys. I'm not the same. Uh, It has made an impact in my life and in my heart. I hope so in yours as well. And so we're going to be in chapter 12 of Mark today. Uh, This week I read about the Detroit Police Department. So back in 2018, the Detroit Police Department rising in this one precinct, in their 12th, 12th precinct, they're having a huge issue, a huge drug problem. And they said, we got to do something about this. So they form a task, task force. They get a bunch of police officers. They train them to be undercover cops. And they worked it from both angles. So they trained some undercover police dep- officers to pose as drug buyers to bust the drug dealers. And then they, po- they trained some cops to be undercover uh, drug sellers to bust the people who were buying all the drugs. And they thought, this way we can, we can work, work both angles. We'll solve our problem, and then this happened. Undercover cops posing as drug buyers arrested by undercover cops posing as drug dealers. Can you imagine? I mean, you think, man, put on the hard work, and we busted them. We got them. Congratulations, you just arrested yourself. That's all that happened. That was a great headline. This week, we're going to see not one group But three groups of people do essentially the same thing. They're going to set a trap, they think, for Jesus. We're going to to get him. We got him. We got a plan. We're going to ask some questions. And we're going to trap Jesus. But all they end up doing is trapping themselves. That's all they end up doing. And here's why Mark puts this here, I think, this little section. It's because, y'all, we are no different. We are no different. It is so easy to think, man, we're being so smart. So intelligent, so wise, so hardworking, so well-intentioned, and we're actually setting our trap for ourselves. Isn't it true that so often you and I, y'all, we can become our own worst enemy? When we do things like think, you know, we can obey our way into God's good favor. Or we think we can pick and choose what parts of Jesus' teaching we like. You know, oh, I really like this verse, I really like this over here, but that, I mean, come on, let's be serious. He didn't really mean that, surely. Or sometimes when we like the morality of Jesus, we like his teaching, but we don't have faith in his power and his actual power to work in our lives. Or, y'all, this is me right here. When we think this world and this life is primary, of primary importance over and above eternity. 
We're going to meet some groups of people that make each and every one of those mistakes. But while they're doing it, y'all, they think they're so smart. They think they are so wise. But all of them, all of them, here's the common denominator. All of them in some way are trying to avoid total faith, total trust, total dependence on Jesus Christ. They are trying to follow Jesus on their own terms. And we're going to find out this. Here's our big idea this morning. When it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to following Jesus, anything less than everything is a trap. If you try to follow Jesus with anything less than everything, you are setting a trap for yourself. So let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 13. It says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. They came and said to him, teacher, we know that you're true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. See, they're trying to butter him up here. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy. He said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought him one and he said to them, whose likeness in inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So these two groups approach Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians. Y'all, this is not the two groups of people anyone expected to team up. This is like the president of Ukraine and Putin teaming up to do something. And everyone's like, what's happening here? This is, this is crazy. Well, they have found a common enemy. They are getting together to trap Jesus. Now, the Herodians, understand, these are Jews, but they're a group of Jews who are seeking to advance the, the influence, the, the political prestige of the Herodian family. The Herodian family, guys. Now, this is the family that is the foreign occupier of the Jews and their land. This is the family that ordered the death of all the male children in Bethlehem when they found about the, out about the birth of Jesus. This is the family that serves Caesar. Caesar who claims to be God. The highest form of idolatry. And in fact, in a minute, when Jesus pulls out that coin, when he pulls out that Roman coin, on that coin, it's going to have a picture of the Roman goddess Pax, the Roman goddess of peace. And then it's going to say that the, the Caesar is the high priest. So this Herodian family serves a Caesar who claims to be God and then the high priest of another false god. And these people are teaming up with the Pharisees. Now, y'all know the Pharisees. They look, they spend their whole days looking for people that they can stone for idolatry. I mean, they're just never too far from a rock they can pick up and throw at someone who is committing idolatry. And here they are teaming up with Herodians. That's how much they hate Jesus and are trying to trap him. Now, here's the trap. So for years, they had all, to pay, all had to pay this poll tax and these property taxes to Rome. And it was an oppressive tax that was uh, going to this idolatrous Roman emperor, and they hated it. They resented having to pay this tax. And so if Jesus says, no, that tax is unjust, you don't have to pay it, then they've got it. Because now he's an enemy of the state. He's a political rebel. But if he says, no, you got to pay your taxes, he's siding with the enemies of God. He is siding with the idolaters. 
And so, y'all, as they approach Jesus, they feel great about this plan. They think he's got no way out. They have him cornered. And then Jesus starts talking. And as soon as he talks, y'all, Jesus had him, and even they knew it. It says they even marveled at what he says. And what Jesus said, first of all, bad news, guys, he said to pay your taxes. I'm sorry, it's in there. That's what he said. And as he says that, those Pharisees are reaching for the rocks. Oh, we got him. And then he says, and, and render to God the things that are God's. Now, think about it. What, what was the deciding factor? He asked him to pull out this Roman coin. What was the deciding factor about the coin? It was whose likeness is on the coin. And he's using that word on purpose. Immediately, the Pharisees' mind would have gone to Genesis 1:26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So what's the picture he's painting for these Pharisees here, okay? If the coin bears Caesar's likeness, what bears God's likeness? We do. Us. And if the coin is owed to Caesar because his likeness is on it, then what is owed to God? Us. Our lives is owed to God. Our whole lives, not just some money, not just some part of our lives, all of it bears his likeness and belongs to him. That's the picture that he's painting. And this is the key to the rest of the chapter. Who created you? Who formed you and knit you together? Whose likeness do you bear? Where do you come from? We have to know that before we proceed. Because see, men and women, when you just set aside just part of your life for God, another part for Caesar, another part for myself, another part here, another part there, and we can have all kinds of clever justification for it, we are actually setting a trap for ourselves. Which brings us to the second trap. The Sadducees are going to step up. So the, the Pharisees, the Herodians fail miserably. Sadducees are like, step aside. We got this. We're smarter than y'all. Okay? Now the Sadducees, a couple things we need to know. They only believed in the first five books of the Old Testament. And therefore, they did not believe either in resurrection or in angels. And because most of the Old Testament teachings on those subjects are, they're, they're developed in later books. Books like Isaiah, books like Daniel, but these Sadducees didn't believe in those books. And they're kind of snobbish about it. Like they, they think they're the smartest guys in the room. They think they're smarter than anybody else. They think all that, that's just fairy tales. They are too smart and too sophisticated to believe all that hullabaloo. Okay? So they come to the Jesus with this ridiculous conundrum. Okay? Seven brothers. And each brother dies one after the other, and all of them, they have no kids. And after each death, the next brother marries the widow. So it's one widow who ends up marrying all seven brothers after the previous brother dies. And so by the end of it, she's married, all seven brothers, no kids, okay? I know, this sounds like a recipe for a podcast or Dateline or something like that. This is crazy. And they're getting at this law of leveret marriage. And it's in the Old Testament. It says a surviving brother of a childless man was obliged to marry the widow that was left behind. 
This was a source of provision for the woman. It was a way to keep families together and family property uh, together. And it's actually fairly limited in the Old Testament. This was, this was not a super common practice. But, but here's, here's the trap. Here's where they're trying to catch Jesus. Okay? So in normal life, everyone gets this. In normal life, one woman cannot be married to seven brothers. Okay? That's uh, polygamy. Uh, that's incest. That's against the law. Everybody agreed with it. Can't do that. And so they think they're pointing out the ridiculousness of the resurrection. Like, how absurd it is. They're laughing as they ask. So she's telling, okay, so which of the seven brothers is she going to be married to in heaven when there's supposedly no sin and everything's perfect? I mean, come on. And they're just laughing as they say this, as if to say, who would believe such a thing? And Jesus' response to them is scathing. Let's pick it up in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but the living. You are quite wrong. He says they have two problems. These snobby Sadducees. Number one, you don't know the scriptures. And he quotes one of the most famous passages that they had learned probably before they could walk. It's, it's like saying, have you not read John 3.16? You Bible snobs don't even know the scriptures that you take so much pride in. But here's your second problem. You don't know the power of God. See, when you don't believe in the resurrection, you're essentially saying, this is all there is. You are saying, there is no redemption. There is no recreation. And Jesus is saying, you don't know the power of God to make all things right and to create a world more wonderful than anything we can imagine. You don't believe in a God bigger than your life. That's what he's telling them. And he uses their own scriptures to prove it. And so he says in verse 26, it's as simple as the tense of a verb. God says, as he appears to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was presently. Now I am the God of those men who died years before. And we all know he's not a God of dead corpses. He's the God of the living. And so when he says to them, verse 27, you are quite wrong. This is a strong word. He is saying you are impressive levels of wrong. It's essentially like he's looking at them saying, what an idiot. That's how strong this language is. But how easy is it for you and for I to, to think we know the scriptures, yet doubt the power of God? Or we forget about Eternity. So we listen to the sermons and we read all the books and we have our quiet times all about how to make sure we have our best life now. There's no eye, no longing, no faith and belief in eternity and the power of God to make all things right. And when we do that, we are setting a trap for ourselves. So then we get to our final trap, trap number three. And we... Y'all, we meet a man, I can identify with this guy. He just wants Jesus to tell him what to do. 
Just tell me what to do, Jesus. I'm trying to figure it out, and I will do it. Let's pick it up in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and that there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus saw that he answered wisely. He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So this is our last attempt. I love how it ends. It ends with, after this, no more questions. After this, all the groups are like, not it. I'm tired of getting embarrassed by Jesus here. And I think there's more going on here, though, than just a trap. It, if you watch this man's response, and he might add, it seems like an honest question. You know, he's a scribe, and it says that others had been disputing with Jesus, but not this guy. He just kind of heard, and then he, he comes up to Jesus, and his response seems to say he is beginning to realize the emptiness of his own legalism, the emptiness of all his efforts to keep the law himself. And so he says in verse 32, he says, you're right. You're right, Jesus. He calls him a teacher, and that's him acknowledging that he is speaking truth. And then he says something no scribe would ever say. He says, what you're telling me to do, it's better than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Yo, for the Pharisees, there is nothing better than bringing the best offerings and the best sacrifices. That's how they showed their devotion. That's how they earned God's favor. That's, that's how he grew up doing his part. But now he says, no, no, no. What you're saying is better than that. So what, what we read here, what we see here is repentance. The scribe is rethinking his thinking about Jesus. And so for, as this rest of this chapter unfolds, before we go any farther, I think it's, it's worth us reminding ourselves. Anytime you can tell Jesus, you're right. You're right, and I've been wrong. And at any point you want to, you can repent and believe. And you could say what you are teaching Jesus, what you are saying, is better than what, how I've been living my whole life. His question for Jesus, it, it would not have been an unusual one for a scribe. So scribes had a lot of commandments. They had about 613 commandments derived from the Old Testament. You had 248 positive commandments. Thou shalt. So kids, you think your parents tell you a lot of things to do? I bet they don't tell you 248 things to do, okay? But that's just the beginning of it. Then we had 365 negative commandments. Thou, there's a thou shalt not for every day of the year. And they love to debate these. You know, so you're supposed to keep all of them. But then they would like to debate, okay, are some more important than the others? Let's get like a tier one, tier two. And then maybe is there one that's the most important? And, and why? why? Why do they debate them like this? Well, maybe I can't keep them all. But you know what? If I do really good at the really important ones, then I'm the man. Then I'm keeping the law. In verse 29, you know, at first, Jesus answers, frankly, exactly how they would expect. 
with the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And every Jew had been reciting that twice a day since they could talk. It was maybe the most important scripture of the Old Testament to them. But then... Notice in that commandment, first, there's really, it's, it's kind of a long phrase that Shema means here. That's the first word. And within it, there's really just one command. What's the command? Love God. But then there's descriptions of how. And what's interesting here was that we translate it, uh, uh, you know, we translate it as uh, with all your heart, with all your soul. But that Hebrew word with, it really is better translated from. So it's, it's really, they, the way they learned it was from your heart, from your mind, from your soul, from your strength, comes, emanates, radiates this love for God. So our whole, the picture is our whole self, our whole life emanates this love for God. So, man, they're tracking with that. They know that. They've learned that ever since. Uh, they, they could remember. But then Jesus hits them with a bonus. They didn't see this coming. The guy asked for one commandment. Jesus gives them one, but then says, actually, I got another one for you. I got a bonus commandment. And he quotes this kind of seemingly random commandment from Leviticus. Now, they would have been familiar with it. Love your neighbor as yourself. But this was nowhere near as central. Uh, It didn't have near the same prestige as the Shema did. So don't miss how powerful this would have been for them. Jesus is connecting these in a way that no one else ever had. Jesus is saying, really, you've learned this as two commandments, but really, there's one commandment that has two parts. There is something that is inseparable from your love for God, and that is your love for people. And really, the book of 1 John is essentially an exposition of Jesus' short words here. I encourage you to read it this week in your own personal study. It's a short book. Go read the book of 1 John. 1 John says the way that you love God is you love people. And the way that you love people is you love God. So every once in a while, you know, you hear somebody say something like, well, well, I love my spouse, you know, but I just don't really, I'm not really into that God thing. I don't really follow God. Well, no, you don't. Because you know how you love your spouse? You love God. And then every once in a while, you know, you hear somebody say, you know, listen, I love God. Me and God, we're tight. I love him so much. I'm so super spiritual, but I don't really do people. I mean, church, people, no, no, no. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No, you don't. Because you know how you love God? You love people. And some people think, you know, sometimes we think we can love God so much, it kind of creates this spiritual snobbery in us. And it kind of causes to look down and be like, well, they don't get it like I do. No, 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 no. We've missed something. If you think you love God so much that it makes you judgmental, it makes you look down your nose at others, you don't love God. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now I have to thank the scribe. I think he kind of had a sense of relief. You know, he, he wanted one, he got two. But that's better than 613, isn't it? I mean, he's told him, listen, all the commands boil down to a single word, love. And that word love just has two objects, God and people. This is beautiful. This is simple. I love the way St. Augustine put it to summarize what Jesus is saying here. He said, love and do as you like. Just love and do as you like. Like, Man, he's got to be thinking, this is so much 
easier than obsessing over 613 commandments and having to constantly try harder and do better and offer sacrifices for the the ones I didn't keep. But then I have to think he stopped and thought about it. And any sense of relief quickly turned to, uh uh-oh, when he stopped and realized what God was asking here. So the word here for love, it's the word agape. And you've probably heard there's several Greek words for love. And Jesus is using this word agape. And it is a different kind of love. Agape love essentially means my life for you. That's agape. It seeks the highest possible good of another at the highest possible sacrifice to myself. Now, in the Greeks, even the secular Greeks, even the pagan Greeks understood that this was divine love. So if you go read Greek literature from around the same time outside the Bible, this word agape, it's used almost never. It's used very rarely because it is so rare, they understood. And when it is used, it is almost always used of the gods. It's not used of men because even the secular world understood this kind of love. It doesn't come from man. See, all human love, they understood this. We know this if we examine our own hearts. All human love is because love. It's I love you because, fill in the blank. So I love pizza because it's delicious. But I also have the same kind of love for meaningful things. It's not just trivial things. It's True of our most important relationships. I love my friends because, well, they like to do all the same things I do. Because they make me laugh. I love my spouse because, because they serve me, because they make me feel good, because they help me, because I enjoy spending time with them. We do it for spiritual things, right? I love this scripture because, oh, it makes me feel so good. It encourages me so much. I love this church because, oh, the music is so great. Even in the most important aspects of our life, it is hard for us to take the because out of love, isn't it? You know, me and my wife went to a concert not long ago. They they played a song. It's a sweet song. It's a beautiful song. I love the song. It's called, I like to be with me when I'm with you. It's a great song. But then I started thinking about that song this week. I love you because of how you make me feel. It's because love. And then I started thinking about every love song I've ever heard. Go listen. Whatever your favorite love song is this week, go revisit the lyrics. Look up the lyrics, read them, and I almost guarantee you it will be something along the lines of, I love you because of what you do for me. Agape love is different. Agape takes the because out of love. It's just, it's not I love you because. It's just I love you, period. And in fact, it is much more about what I sacrifice than what I gain. So I don't know if you've noticed, but God has just asked us to do something we can't do. So what if I told you, what if I told you, hey, following God, real easy, real simple, only one thing you got to do. All you have to do, this one thing, shoot lasers out of your eyeballs. That's it. You and I, trying to make agape, come out of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is like you trying to shoot lasers out of your eyeballs. See, what Jesus has said 
all along. This is our core problem. Our core problem is not that we can only keep 612 out of 613 commandments or that we don't offer big enough sacrifices. Our problem is our hearts. Our hearts are impoverished when it comes to agape. We do not have it in us. And this is the attraction of legalism. In a sense, it is easier to memorize and obsess over 613 commandments than it is to make agape emanate out of my whole self. Because at least I can do some of those 613 under my own power. But Jesus says here, Jesus says, listen, the path to true life is the right kind of love for the right things, and you don't have it in you. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, notice what he says to the man in verse 34. You are not far from the kingdom. Coincidentally, Jesus was standing right next to the man. And that sounds a lot like 115, one of our key verses for the book of Mark. This is how we respond when we are not far from the kingdom of God. Let's read it together. Verse 15, and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When the kingdom is close, what do you do, men and women? Do you go have perfect obedience? Do you, you find the most important command and, and go obey it on your own power, obey it perfectly? No. You repent of your inability to keep his commandments and you trust him. That's what we do when we are close to the kingdom. Remember the coin? You remember whose likeness you bear? You bring your whole life to him. And next, here's what Jesus is going to show us next. Jesus is going to show his disciples a living, breathing coin who knows that she bears the likeness and image of God. Let's skip ahead to verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put everything she had, all she had to live on. So you, the picture is, you, you, you can picture this. You have all these wealthy people bringing huge sums of money and then this poor widow, she probably limps for it and she just put it in. It says two copter, copper coins. The word there is a, a leptin. It's, about, it's worth about one 128th of a day's wages for a poor laborer. We are talking about fractions of a cent here. And in God's estimate, she gave more than the rest of them. Why? Because she gave everything. It was her whole self. She knew whose likeness she bore and she brought her whole self to God. See, the value of the penny here, the value of the penny isn't in its spending power. The value of the penny is in its totality. She is rendering to God the things that are God's, namely everything. The problem, the problem with the offering of the rich wasn't what they gave so much as it was what they held back. They were like these Pharisees and these Herodians. You know, I'll give a little bit to Caesar. I'll give a little bit to God. I'll keep a little bit to myself. And they think they're earning God's favor by bringing in the big bucks. 
But it's a trap. They're trapping themselves because they refuse to bring their whole self to the one in whose likeness they are made. And notice what it says. She came in her poverty. Jesus is showing us how we follow the greatest commandment here. How love for God and love for people can emanate from our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because when it comes to agape, you and I are the impoverished widow. We don't have anything to offer. But you can bring your whole self to him. And anything less than that, anything less than everything, is a trap. Anything less than what this widow has done will not bring life. It will not bring love into yourself. It will only disappoint. It will leave you without agape love. But when we bring our whole self to Jesus, men and women, here's what he does. He fills us up with the agape love that we lack. What's the ultimate expression of agape love? It's the cross, isn't it? Your highest possible good at his highest possible sacrifice. See, men and women, Jesus isn't asking us to drum up and produce and come up with the agape on our own. He is providing it himself through the cross. We are, we see, we behold, we are filled with, and we are transformed into his divine agape love. Jesus is saying, listen, before you can give it, you've got to receive it. And you got to receive it from me. And that's why you got to bring your whole self to me, not having it all together, but in your poverty. So bring your whole self to me is what he's saying. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.